Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Occasionally, we get a court case that has ripple effects across the fiduciary, asset management, and investment management industries. In this episode, we're going to look at the potentially massive implications of the recent Supreme Court case, Hughes versus Northwestern. The original issue before the court was whether or not the 403B plan participants had properly pled their case in their complaint. The lower courts had dismissed the case, relying on a concept known as the menu of options defense. The basic argument of the menu of options defense has been that plans satisfy their fiduciary duties under ERISA as long as they offered a mixture of investment options, even if some of those investment options would be considered imprudent under applicable legal standards. In a unanimous 8-0 vote, the court rejected the menu of options defense. The implications of this case could be far-reaching and include investment fiduciaries of all stripes, including trustees and potentially RIAs and other wealth management firms. To help us understand the case and its impact on ERISA matters and the fiduciary landscape in general, I'm going to speak with Jim Watkins. Jim provides all manner of fiduciary counsel. He's a certified financial planning professional. He owns the Watkins Law Firm out of Georgia and has been an attorney since 1981. His career also includes serving as a compliance officer with several national brokerage firms and as the Director of Financial Planning Quality Assurance for the Advisory Division of an International Insurance Corporation. Finally, he is the creator of the Active Management Value Ratio, a metric that allows investors, investment fiduciaries, and attorneys to quickly and easily calculate the prudence of actively managed mutual funds. Welcome aboard, Jim. Thanks, Fraser. Thanks for inviting me. Well, this is a treat for me because we found each other on Twitter and I think probably formed a mutual admiration society over the way we think. <laughs> and then I'd been desperate to have you on the podcast. And then another mutual friend of ours, Rick Ferry, had you on. And it was so good that I was like, I wonder what we're going to talk about. <laughs> but then the Supreme Court case came down and here we are. And what we're talking about is Hughes versus Northwestern and the broader implications. Why don't we start with a quick question before we get into the details of it? And which are the big one is what are the fiduciary responsibilities of the provider of a fiduciary plan? The two primary responsibilities are the fiduciary duty of loyalty and the fiduciary duty of prudence. The fiduciary duty of loyalty simply says that the plan sponsor and any other plan fiduciaries have a duty to always put the best interest of the plan participants and their beneficiaries first. The duty of prudence, on the other hand, simply says that any investments chosen by the plan to offer to the plan participants must be prudent. And typically what we talk about as far as prudence is that the benefits of the investment outweigh the costs. So this falls within ERISA. Help us understand that. Well, ERISA, I think the simplest way to understand ERISA is ERISA, several courts have stated that ERISA is simply the codification of the common law of trust, which in the United States is expressed in what's known as the restatement third of trust. So it's it all goes back to English common law. And basic the primary interests there are fair dealing with the plan participants. 
let's get back to the case at hand here, Hughes versus Northwestern. And what was that issue here? The original issue was whether or not the plan participants had properly pled their case. And the issue there is the Supreme Court, well, in the lower courts, they said you didn't plead enough. You just simply said the fees are excessive. You've got to plead more. And what they were relying on was the Supreme Court says you have to prove plausibility of your argument, not just possibility. So that was the original question that went to the court. Interestingly enough, the Solicitor General raised an issue in her amicus brief saying, we've got a bigger problem here, and that is we've got half the federal courts of appeal applying one standard, we've got half applying another standard, and the Solicitor General said, these ERISA rights and guarantees are too important. We need to address that. And that's ultimately what the Supreme Court ruled. They didn't even rule on the original issue. They sent it back to the lower courts and said, you deal with that. But what they said is there's one standard, and that is that every investment option offered within a plan has to be prudent. You can't have a mixture of prudent investment options and imprudent investment options. So what's the implication of that? So the idea that the way of doing business was to throw a menu at the problem and to sort of say, oh, well, it's the responsibility of the plan participant to choose and we are providing a ton of choices. Therefore, we're both complying with the law and doing good. That's been reversed. At the very least, it's, it's being questioned. How does this work going forward if everything has to be prudent? Well, I think there are two major implications here. ERISA itself says that the plan sponsor has the ultimate responsibility for choosing the prudent investment choices. They've been shirking that duty, in my opinion, and the opinion of other attorneys. And what they typically do is they hire an outside plan advisor to come in and advise them, basically because they don't know how to choose prudent investments. But the courts have said, you can't blindly rely on a third party. So going forward, I think I've gotten a lot of calls from plans and plan sponsors saying, what do we do? I said, the first thing you do is you learn how to choose, monitor prudent investments. And then you can hire the outside third party, but you have to be able to know how to independently evaluate their advice. I struggle with this in the sense that in some ways, I can't believe that people who are walking into a role that says fiduciary on it don't understand this. How has this metastasized over the years? In my opinion, we've had too many cases where the courts have ruled inconsistent with ERISA. As you said, one of the issues in the Hughes versus Northwestern case was the court ended up discrediting the menu of options argument. In fact, Justice Kagan asked Northwestern's attorney, you don't believe this, do you? And the, and the attorney admitted no. And the other issue we had that we'll discuss later is we had cases where the courts would not allow the plan participants to present evaluation valuations of the planned investment options as opposed to comparable index funds. And the courts were saying, we're not going to let you make that analysis because that's comparing apples to oranges. Fortunately, that too has been discredited. The case has been remanded back to lower courts to determine facts. Things haven't even gotten to discovery on these different points, it sounds like. What happens in this case going forward? Actually, the court stopped the proceedings at the point where they were actually, it's a bench trial. And the court did not allow 
and the Supreme Court notes this, the low, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals did not allow the plan participants to present their arguments. So what we're going to do now is we're going to pick up the trial where it broke off, and essentially the plan participants are going to be able to present evidence of imprudence based on a comparison of the investment options that were were within the plan versus comparable index funds. If Northwestern were to settle, is that going to show up anywhere? Is there any sort of jurisprudence that will be attached to this going forward? The jurisprudence that will attach to it to address the second part has already been established by the Supreme Court's decision. When you, yeah, when you get a ruling, both of us are attorneys, when you get a ruling for the Supreme Court, that's going to be cited over and over again. It's already being cited in courts that had put their cases on hold pending the Supreme Court's decision. Um, as far as the settlement, I think all of us agree that Northwestern's clearly had a mixture of prudent and imprudent investments, and not only Northwestern, but all the other 401k plans that had relied on the menu of options argument, we're going to see settlements, and I think we're going to see settlements quickly. We've got a big Supreme Court case to act as the jurisprudence and really the lever to to get to discovery around all of these processes. And there's going to be a huge increase in scrutiny in the stewardship of these plans. We talked about the increase in cases. Where is that going to reside? That's definitely in the 401k and 403b area, correct? It is. And I think I just want to throw this in because I'm getting a lot of calls from the plans themselves. I think we're going to see an increase in cases, obviously, against 401k and 403b plans. But as I'm telling them, they have recourse against these advisors for bad advice. So I think we're going to see an increase in actions by 401ks and 403b plans against their plan advisors. The investment consultants who have led them down this path, as it turns out, probably incorrectly are going to be huge targets as well. Absolutely. And a lot of plans have called me and said, well, I relied on the plan advisor. I don't think that's going to give them any relief because the problem with that is Section 404A of ERISA clearly states that each individual investment within a plan must be prudent. So I don't think they can, in good faith, make an argument that they reasonably relied on the plan advisor's advice, even though it was bad. And you're still the fiduciary. You can delegate as much as you want. But if it's pretty clear that the buck stops with you, it stops with you. You got to be able to parse between the advice and you're stuck with your own decision in some ways. That's an excellent point. But Plan sponsors don't understand that. I mean, I don't know why. I'm like you. If you're going to be a fiduciary, learn what needs to be done. Get a fiduciary attorney. But they just, too many plan sponsors believe, well, if I hire a plan advisor, I don't have any, I don't have any responsibilities anymore. You've shuffled the responsibility off, so you think, right up until the point when the advice turns around on you and then, well, wait a minute, I'm sitting in the seat that's getting the arrow shot at it and uh, and I haven't got William Tell across the way there. (laughs) One of the implications, too, of all this, we're going to have increased litigation that's already started, is an increase in discovery. I always worry a little bit about the concept of other nefarious things that may be going on under the hood in terms of compensation arrangements, kickbacks, other situations that may not exist. Do you see that as a danger? Am I overreacting? No, I'm on record as saying that transparency is the kryptonite of the financial services industry. But I believe, as I just said before, 
I think that fear of discovery is what's going to prompt a lot of these quick settlements. The implication being that nobody wants to let a full flashlight get in under the blanket to, to see what's happening. Pandora's box. That's right. So with all of this litigation, do we run into the problem that the costs to provide these plans is going to go up? Or are we going to have fewer providers? Is there sort of the unintended consequence of increased transparency causing what is a useful thing in terms of helping people save for retirement becoming more expensive? Or is, is this something where it's just sort of a bad action plan that can be fairly easily corrected? I think it can be easily corrected. As you know, we just started a, a project, myself and two of my friends, and I think it can be easily corrected by addressing three simple things. Reduce the cost of the plan, reduce the number of options provided by the plan, and then monitor the plan and only choose cost-efficient investment options for the plan. As far as the cost going up, I think one cost that we're definitely going to see that not a lot of people are talking about, but it's already underway. I think the insurance E&O coverage for these plans is going to skyrocket. And that's another reason to simplify a plan using the three points I just mentioned. So it's one of those, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The plan can be saved and easily saved and actually be made simpler to maintain by just addressing those three points. So to, to build off of that a little bit, simplifying investments, reducing the number, sort of a change in the way that investments and the stewardship are analyzed, I guess, deemed appropriate. Do we run the risk of certain, let's call it financial innovations being slowly adopted by these plans? I'm thinking Bitcoin and private investments like private equity and hedge funds and so on. I mean, I've got to think that you are, you as a plan trustee are going to think once, twice, three times, 10 times before you do anything like that. You better. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, just by virtue of the fact that if each investment has to be deemed prudent, how do you analyze that? Well, as you know, I'm a big advocate of cost efficiency. Charlie Ellis, over 30 years ago, suggested compare two funds, an active fund to an index fund, compare the incremental cost between the funds to the incremental returns. And if the incremental costs exceed incremental returns, it's imprudent. It's totally consistent with Section 90 of the restatement. If you look at 404C of ERISA, it says, theoretically, you can be compliant with three investments. I personally believe you can have a prudent 401k, 403b plan with five broadly diversified investment options. And I'm hoping, and I, I think I'm getting through to a number of the planners, make it simple on yourself. And when you're doing that, you're actually promoting a win-win 401k because you're making it simpler for the plan participants to choose the investment options. And with a higher degree of probable success because part of investing is to keep costs low because very frequently they the investments don't sort of surmount their costs and provide alpha beyond any sort of index benchmark. People are able to keep more money in their pocket and compound it over time. Well, that's like John Bogle said in advocating index funds versus the higher costs of active funds. He goes, you get what you don't pay for. <laughs> That's right. So one of the things that you've developed over time has been the actively managed value ratio, which in a sense provides some structure around this cost benefit analysis that you just described. Talk about that a little bit and why that might be a useful tool in analyzing these investments and whether they meet you know, sort of past muster for inclusion on a plan. 
The best reference that I've heard about the active management value ratio was from a judge. I was an expert witness in a case and the other side, the plan tried to disqualify me or at the very least tell the court, have the court tell me that I couldn't refer to the metric. And at the end of the day, the court goes, this metric is nothing more than third grade math. And he goes, you're telling me that I'm supposed to tell him not to use third grade math? And, that, and it is. The thing I'm proudest of, of the metric, is its simplicity. It's not an algorithm. I don't even know what an algorithm is. I talked my way out of calculus in high school and college. So what it is, is if you've ever taken an economics course or a business course, you've probably heard of the cost-benefit analysis. And that's what this is. The only difference between the typical cost-benefit analysis is the input values on the active management value ratio is incremental cost versus increment and incremental return. And then you just do the subtraction, and it does provide a way for determining cost efficiency. And once you're familiar with it, the, another rewarding part is I've had everyday investors and I've had plan sponsors contact me go, this is simple. And I go, it is, but get the message. It means that if you get sued for having improper investments, you're going to see the AMVR metric again. Just remember how simple it is. Don't have the arrow aimed back at your own chest. <laughs> so one of the things that we've mused in separate conversations around this, we we're talking about Hughes versus Northwestern, and that seems like a clearly an ERISA case. It clearly involves 401ks and 403bs. But the concepts around stewardship of pools of money goes beyond that framework. And I look at this and say, this is now a Supreme Court concept that talks about the fiduciary responsibility over money and that this could have big spillovers into other areas of trusteeship. Take us through a little bit about the restatement third of trusts and why that applies to so many things. Well, as I said beforehand, it's based it's derived from the common law of trust. Fiduciary law is actually a combination of trust law, agency law, and equity law. And it, the basic overriding principle on all three of those is fundamental fairness. And so it doesn't matter whether you're a trustee, any other investment fiduciary, what the restatement basically says, and I've told people that if you're going to look at the restatement in terms of fiduciary law, the key section is section 90, which is also known as the prudent investor rule. And what you see in there is a constant attention to two basic principles, diversification as a means of controlling risk and the need for cost efficiency. Again, it doesn't matter what type of investment fiduciary you are, the courts are going to apply. In, a, in another court case, the Tibble case, the Supreme Court, in fact, led off the discussion by saying that in matters of fiduciary controversies, look to the restatement third of trust. Let's say I'm a trust company or an RIA, and let's start with a trust company where I talk about the concept of fiduciary with a capital F versus fiduciary with a little f. And fiduciary with a capital F where you're responsible for certainly the stewardship of the assets, the distribution of the assets, and then the investment of the assets. And then in sort of taking care of the investment side of the piece, how do you see this possibly reverberating? If you're in charge of this and you haven't gone through a cost-benefit analysis 
of these assets. I mean, that seems to be a point of vulnerability to me. It absolutely is because again, if you if you don't know how to properly evaluate the assets, and most people will look first at returns, and that's all they'll look at. And if you're familiar with the financial press, that's what the ads focus on. One of the things, as I said beforehand, I'm a big advocate for cost efficiency. A lot of people will argue, well, it has alpha. Alpha is irrelevant if it's not cost efficient because it's not prudent. The other thing I think we're going to start to see an increase in, I give seminars for attorneys to teach them how to address these cases. I think we're going to start to see an argument more with regards to correlation of returns. Uh, If an actively managed fund has a high correlation of returns to a comparable index fund, then you're overpaying for the same performance. I know it's already being used in some cases outside the U.S., and I thought I think we're going to start to see the correlation of returns argument gain legs here in the U.S. as well. That sort of implies that the benchmark huggers that are charging an active management fee, they're going to be under further attack under this type of thing. And then if you are someone who recommends and or implements that type of investment in a trust situation, you better have a really good argument for it. You better have a good argument. And I just don't see one. And you can't diversify away all of this, right? One thing I've heard from somebody saying, well, you know, if it represents 1% of the portfolio, then, you know, the overall diversification provides some shielding here. To me, if we go back to the idea that the each individual investment has to be deemed prudent, that you can't have 1% gold, 1% Bitcoin, 1% this, that, the other thing, and have that add up to 20% and detract from the portfolio. Do you agree with that? Or am I, is that a, a misnomer on my part? No, I agree with it. I used to be a compliance director and I saw repeated instances of asset allocation recommendations with reference to an allocation less than 5%. And I'm on record. I don't see how our allocation of less than 10% really provides any diversification at all. And I think the other factor with regard to diversification, the idea that the more options you offer, the greater the diversity. I think just the opposite. If we go back to what the court said in the Northwestern case, each additional investment option you offer, to me, simply increases the potential risk of noncompliance. Different asset classes. I'm thinking more in the world of private equity and hedge funds, and then maybe even annuities. But let's start with sort of private equity, where in many times you don't find out how well it did until 10 years later on. How do you think about that in in this framework? I think that's a valid point. I think another valid point is the fact when you start offering annuities, when you start offering private equity, uh, hedge funds, Keep in mind, studies have consistently shown that most of America is financially illiterate. So as I've told plan sponsors, when you start offering alternatives like that, do you really believe the plan participants understand those at all? And then I ask them, the plan sponsor, go, do you understand them at all? 
Here's another question. In the world where pensions still exist and there are pension funds that are being managed either at the company level or for firefighters or the policemen of a state, teachers, etc. I've seen situations where pension funds are used as the anchor tenant for products in the financial services world to give them sort of a start in terms of starting a product and pension fund theoretically has a long enough time horizon to be able to sort of withstand the the ups and downs as it gets going. Does the framework change on that too? Uh, I would think obviously a pension fund, you know, whoever's managing that is financial fiduciary of those funds. Is there a problem here for them? Uh, Does this case potentially bend into that situation? We're going to have to see. To be honest with you, I don't think it's going to. Public pensions, like as you said, like firefighters, policemen, and most notably teachers. My sister-in-law was a principal. And um, I remember when she first came to me, because I'm also a certified financial planner and being in compliance director, she goes, help me. And I looked at what she had and I went, are you kidding me? And one of the biggest problems we have in this country right now, as you suggested, is that especially with public education, both college and elementary schools, the teachers are being used and abused with variable annuities. The problem with variable annuities is the way the fees are calculated. And in most cases that I've seen, the variable annuities are loaded with cost inefficient, in many cases, simply dog funds that are being loaded up on the teachers. I don't know what the answer is. I don't, it's going to have to be an innovation. ERISA doesn't directly apply to those public pension funds. And every time it's been attempted, the courts have shot it down. We're just going to have to wait and see. I'm hearing things about possible challenges. This is just my opinion. If there is going to be a challenge, a successful challenge, it's going to need to be based on common law, specifically negligence, fraud, and breach of contract, implied breach of implied contract with the school boards. Got it. And I guess to take it one step further, if a private company has a pension and it's been managed in one way, shape or form, those types of principles would apply. Would, the, would there be any difference in analysis there in the sense that they're doing they're doing their best to maintain a pension, which is great. But if there's some sort of weird conflict embedded with the way things are implemented, would that change your analysis at all? Here we're comparing a defined contribution plan with a defined benefit plan. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court has already ruled that with defined benefit plans, the risk is on the company, whereas with a defined contribution plan, the risk is on plan participants, which is why the court's trying to protect plan participants. With defined benefit, what the Supreme Court said, and they're right, in a defined benefit plan, the company, the private company, has a legal obligation to make the payments called for within the plan so they don't have anything to argue about if they're imprudent investment options. I disagree with that. I think they should be required to only select prudent investments because what if down the line, down 10 years down the line, what if they find out well, we can't make the payments? Yeah, again, the problem is by the time the injury takes place, it may be far too late to really do anything about it. That's right. 
So we're going to wind up here shortly, but talk about where the different regulatory agencies fit in here. SEC, FINRA, other regulatory bodies, they're going to have something to say on this. Even the insurance agencies at various states, if we're talking about annuities, how do you see that interaction happening as these cases start to not only go through sort of the typical ERISA framework, but also if the RIA space or other investment managers, wealth managers start to get pulled in? That's a loaded question. (laughs) I think we've got three bodies that we need to monitor. As you said, FINRA, which is the self-regulatory body for broker-dealers. We've got the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, which oversees brokers, but also oversees RAs. And a third party, the Department of Labor, with regard to these pension plans. There's a lot of things that are being considered. The Department of Labor is... The Department of Labor under former President Trump tried to come up with a fiduciary standard and the court shot it down. Obviously, we have a democratic regime and their Department of Labor has announced that it's trying to formulate a new fiduciary standard. A lot lot will depend on what that fiduciary standard says. From the SEC side, they have enacted what they call reg best interest. The problem with reg best interest as far as provide, protecting investors, uh, both with regard to possibly pension plans and individually, is that reg BI only requires a broker to select prudent investments that are readily available. Well, you and I both know, and as I said, I'm a former compliance director, in most brokerages, they run what's called a pay-for-play system, and they restrict their brokers to only recommending products that have paid to play. And a lot of those are actively managed funds. So the issue that's going to be coming up is, does Reg BI, should it be changed to require prudence across the board, not limited to just what the broker-dealer is paid to allow access for? So, I mean, if I'm issue spotting here, I would say that for a lot of different people, complying with one regulatory body might not get you out of harm's way in terms of other components or other regulatory bodies or other bodies of law. So that's what I take from that. Is that accurate? I, th- I, th- I think that's a correct read. As we wind up here, this is fascinating, and I this is a lot of fun for me because this is something that you and I have been talking about for at least a couple of years, and to see the Supreme Court drop the hammer on uh, and to see where the ripples are going to go in the pond is going to be fascinating going forward. How do we stay in touch with you, Jim? What's the best way for people to find out more about what you do, the actively managed value ratio, and, and the different legal work that you do? You can follow me both on Twitter at my Twitter handle is at investsense, I-N-V-E-S-T-S-E-N-S-E. I'm also on LinkedIn, member of a number of groups on LinkedIn, and I do post frequently. I have three websites, and rather than give you the addresses, Fraser's going to include the, include those three addresses in the notes for this program. And included in the show notes, I'm going to put the Supreme Court decisions so that everyone can kind of take a look at that and maybe a couple of summaries and also your interview on Rick Ferry's podcast, which I thought was excellent as well. Jim, thank you very much for being on. This is educational, and I think it's something that hasn't gotten a lot of press yet for the rank and file, and I think that's going to have a lot of impact going forward. Thank you, Frazier. I totally enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice. 
author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.